You are listening to Tomb Global, a Tomb podcast for lifelong learning. When one talks about chemical processes, the first image that might spring to mind is scientists in lab coats and fizzing liquids in test tubes. But chemical processes are at the heart of how society and nature both stores and produces energy. And indeed, our burning of fossil fuels plays an active part in the chain of chemical reactions. Our aggressive intervention through the burning of fuels and their hydrocarbons releases the accumulated energy stored over millions of years, and of course, a number of gases, including carbon dioxide. But how can we better understand these processes? And is there a way to harness chemical processes to produce fuels and energy that are carbon neutral? Today we are joined by Professor Matteo Maestri, Professor of Chemical Engineering at Politecnico di Milano. His research focuses on the modelling of catalytic chemical processes, microkinetic modelling and analysis, as well as developing computational fluid dynamics of reacting flows. Professor Maestri's research has attracted attention both home and abroad, and he has successfully secured funding from private and public sources, raising millions of euros from the US and Italian governments industry and the European Research Council. Amongst his many other roles, we are delighted to be able to name Professor Maestri amongst our TUM ambassadors and he has long been part of TUM's wider family since becoming an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at TUM in 2011. Professor Maestri, Matteo, a very warm welcome to you. Great to have you with us today. Hi, how are you? All well here and Really excited uh, to dig into this topic, doing the research. It's made me look at fossil fuels, particularly the chemical uh, elements of it, in a completely different way. And I think a lot of our, our listeners will be familiar you know, with some of the key facts and indeed negative arguments around fossil fuels. But of course, we haven't just started using them for fun. Obviously, there's very key reasons for that. And I don't think we, we often stop to reflect on why they are the go-to energy deposit. Uh, or indeed consider the chemical processes behind their creation. So maybe just as an opening question, could you tell us a little bit more about the key chemical processes involved in the creation of fossil fuels? Sure. Uh, well, a fossil fuel uh, is a, a hydrocarbon-containing material formed underground from the remains of dead plants and animals. And uh, strictly speaking, they are not a source of energy. So indeed, the energy is not created there but they contain energy. So as such, they act as uh, energy storage or energy vectors. So the question is, uh, where does the energy content come from? And to answer this question, uh, we can focus, for example, on the biomasses that were the precursors of what we know today as fossil fuels. Well, uh, as we know, the growth and the life of a biomass is uh, regulated by the photosynthesis which is a, a process used by plants and other organisms in layman terms to convert light energy, photons, into chemical energy. And this is done by fixing carbon dioxide and water to form, in general, sugar and oxygen. This process, in essence, makes it possible to store the energy from the sun in chemical bonds. And when we burn a fossil fuel or a biomass, we follow the opposite path. We make the hydrocarbon react with oxygen, and this releases back the CO2 
and the water originally consumed in the photosynthesis process. In this respect, for Mother Nature perspective, CO2 is a, a sort of an exchange currency of this energy market between the sun and the biomass. You, get it, you, you take it to store the energy and you give it back uh, when you release the energy. To go back to your original question is uh, uh, what, what are fossil fuels in the end? Well, the principal origin of uh, fossil fuels is the anaerobic decomposition of these biomasses and dead organisms that contain organic molecules that are created in ancient photosynthesis process. The transitions from these uh, uh, processes materials to high carbon fossil fuels had required a geological process of millions of years in peculiar conditions of temperature and pressure. And such, they represent, in the end, an immense storage of energy from the past. Have to th thank you very much for that, Matteo. I have to say it's a, a really wonderful answer. And the image you use there of CO2 acting as an exchange currency, that's really helpful uh, in terms of painting this picture of energy moving from the sun, then transferring to the earth for your photosynthesis, and then CO2 being at both ends of, of that process, so to speak, in terms of the original storing of the energy in the biomass to now when we burn it and we re-release it back into, into the atmosphere. Maybe just to touch on the last point you made there as well in terms of fossil fuels. Are we exploiting them for their convenience or is it more a question of their abundance uh, and the historical reasons behind that? How, how do you see that? Uh, well, I would say that they are definitely a great uh, storage of energy. And as a result of the processes that they went through underground, they are characterized by huge energy densities, they are chemical stable in normal conditions, and they are easy to store and transport. In the end, these three characteristics made them, from a technological point of view, an ideal energy vector in our society, in our economy. And this is why, from a technological point of view, they are very hard to replace nowadays. On the flip side of the same coin, however, they are also characterized by an urgent climate change issue. Fossil fuels are the result of the consumption of uh, carbon dioxide, water, and photons to produce the biomasses that subsequently underwent fossilization processes leading to the formation of what we call the fossil resources. But the latter process took millions of years. Today, we satisfy our energy needs by oxidizing these fossil fuels at a much faster rate. So basically, fraction of a second. And in this way, we are able to make available again this solar energy that was stored in chemical bonds millions of years ago. This immense difference between the time scale of the energy storage, so geological ages, and the energy release, so fraction of a second, also apply to the CO2, not only to the energy. So CO2 is our exchange currency, as we you know, discussed which is now reformed in the oxidation process and therefore rises the concentration of the CO2 in the atmosphere. But let me make here an important point. So CO2 is not a toxic material or a toxic molecule. This is also essential for our life due to the carbon cycle we're actually living and for the regulation of the temperature of the earth. So without CO2, there wouldn't be life as we know it today on our planet. However, the perturbation of the level of concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere can perturbate the equilibrium where we live in. So the rising concentration of CO2, which is in the end a greenhouse gas, 
as one of the primary causes of the increase of the temperature of the Earth and thus of the climate change issue that we are facing today. Yeah, fantastic. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's commonly accepted international level IPCC, and I think also amongst most most listeners, most people uh, today in the world accept that CO2 is, is the primary driver uh, behind climate change. And indeed, you're, you're right, it's a complicated problem. Fossil fuels being uh, particularly stable, easy to transport, there's a lot of convenience around the reasons that we use them. And indeed, fascinating, like you say, you know, fractions of a second of burning a fossil fuel to release energy that's, that's taken millions of years to, to gather and be stored in chemical bonds. And in a sense, and we're seeing that a bit now actually in the current energy crisis, that we still need energy and we still need to heat our homes, cook our dinners, power our podcast microphones. And it's really interesting because we discussed in, in our pre-brief that chemists were behind the last revolution in energy, indeed really pushing us towards using fossil fuels. And it leads us kind of to the crux of the question of today's podcast, which is uh, what sort of solutions can chemists offer us in this in this generation uh, to maybe solve uh, some of these problems that we've created? Well, chemistry plays a, a crucial role in energy because it makes it possible to store chemically the energy from the sun. So the nature of the problem that we have discussed uh, is the immense difference in time scale between the energy storage, basically the formation of fossil fuels, and the energy release, so the combustion processes. Thus, chemistry is helping in finding solution in reducing this time scale. So if the steps were at the same speed, thus there wouldn't be no accumulation of CO2 and no perturbation of the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. You know, in a different way, we can also try to find different routes that do not involve CO2 as it happens in the nature. So using CO2 as an exchange currency of energy is mostly related to the carbon cycle that we are actually based in and we are used also in our exploitation. But, you know, chemistry is exploring also different routes. Let's name a few examples that might be uh, familiar. An example of shortening the cycles, shortening the difference in time scale between the production and the release of the energy through uh, the energy carriers are the biofuels. So basically biofuels are produced directly from biomasses, thus avoiding the, the fossilization processes that happens over millions of years. They are still based on the photosynthesis uh, and they still then use CO2 as an exchange currency of this sort of energy market from the sun. The limiting step, however, is the growth of the biomass, and thus this can result in a substantial reduction of the difference between the energy and consequently CO2, which is storage, and the energy and the CO2, which is released. A lot of research now is focused also on the direct uh, carbon dioxide activation for the production of the so-called e-fuels or electric fuels, and this would be allowed to further shortening this gap. An alternative is not to use CO2. So basically, this is uh, the concept, for example, of a, a hydrogen economy. So hydrogen that needs to come from processes that are not emitting CO2. So today, the hydrogen production accounts for a substantial part of the emission of CO2. So therefore, the challenge here is to convert the energy of the sun, so the photons, in a chemical energy by producing, for example, hydrogen and oxygen from water electrolysis, and then oxidize the hydrogen to produce again water and release the energy originally stored in this way. That's absolutely fascinating. It's a really interesting concept as well. Cut CO2 out or take carbon out of the process. 
and try and find ways that maybe get us out of this way of thinking that somehow got to use the same process but reduce the amount of carbon when actually maybe we should be looking at a completely different currency in which we can exchange energy with the sun. So I suppose, as you say, Matteo, if if we kind of know we could do these other things, and of course these are being explored, what is the biggest challenge involved in the production of these? And I think you touched on it just a little bit there, but perhaps you could expand, you know, particularly in terms of the challenges of biofuels or hydrogen. Well, uh, there are several challenges, uh, and uh, we can say in short that there is no free lunch. So uh, in the sense that uh, there are a lot of you know, issues that arises uh, and the solution of the issues can, must be considered in order to, you know, to make everything you know, possible in terms of exploitation of these energy sources. Let me name uh, a few. So first of all, we need to carefully consider and evaluate that the energy and the emission of CO2 cannot be higher than what we get out of them. So this requires a careful consideration of all the steps involved in the production and use of the energy carriers. And in this regards, chemistry and chemical engineering can play a very pivotal role. For the rest, uh, the other general big challenge, uh, for example, is to increase the energy and power density because they are crucial in order to compete with fossil fuels, especially at scale. So what we need to keep in mind that uh, energy density and power density are crucial aspects that need to be considered when you talk about energy. Questions are simple if you want. How much volume do we need, for example, to store a given quantity of energy with a given energy carrier? So for instance, the storage of the energy required for a transatlantic flight via jet fuel, it occupies, you know, roughly speaking, 8% of the volume of the aircraft. The same energy chemically stored in batteries at the current level of technology today would require more than the entire volume of the aircraft due to the lower energy density, which is a crucial problem. Thus, increasing the energy density is a key step for research in the field. Another example comes from biofuels. A key point, uh, for example, in this respect is the amount of land or space in general required for the biomass to grow. To increase the amount of energy per meter square and increase the energy content of these uh, materials, for example, bioalgaes are, are very promising technology as compared to traditional biomasses. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for that. All of these different solutions or alternatives to fossil fuels require sim- similar kinds of questions of, okay, what's the wider impact? How much space do they need? How efficient are they? How much waste is there going to be? And it's really interesting the point uh, that you make there, Matteo, about energy density and the importance of that. This example that you use of transatlantic flight, you know, how much fuel you need at 8% of the, the aircraft's mass compared to a battery that would need to be the size of the plane to get it up and going. So yeah, but when we think that all of these problems amongst these alternatives are, are similar somewhat in nature, it, it brings us to the focus, I think, of your own research uh, and finding catalytic solutions to help make the process of creating fuels that much quicker, that much more efficient, and in some ways that much more sustainable. But perhaps first, before we get too deep into catalytic processes, maybe you could briefly describe you know, what is a catalyst? A catalyst is a, a material or a molecule that allows the chemical system, so the, the chemical reacting system, to proceed by a, a specific path. This can result typically in higher rates of the reaction 
and in the formation of specific molecules in spite of others unwanted molecules, a crucial issue of a catalyst is that is being selective to specific molecules at faster rate. It is not consumed by the reaction itself, so this can be seen as a sort of a, somehow a facilitator of the reaction that you want to perform. Catalysis actually plays a, a crucial role, both in the production of important chemicals and materials. I mean, for instance, ammonia, which is the basis of production of fertilizers nowadays, pharmaceutical products, uh, energy application. So even at, in the current uh, you know, energy paradigm, so fuel production from oil has a lot of catalytic processes and environmental protection. So for example, the pollution abutment, so all the regulation that we have, for example, in our vehicles today. So catalysis in the end uh, is uh, at the heart our lives and our economy. So every day we have uh, somehow a hidden catalytic experience in our, you know, everyday life. Yeah, it's in it's in the background in some of the products yes. that we've used. And maybe just just for the clarity, is it too much of a stretch to describe it as almost a lubricant of these processes in the way that you you add it to the process and it speeds it up and makes it that a little bit easier without actually without actually being needed for the process. It just makes things that much quicker and more efficient. Yes, it is actually a, a real facilitator. So basically, you need to see a catalyst uh, as a, your possibility of tailoring uh, a specific pathways in the process. Right. So acting on the rates, uh, you make them, you know, very, very, you know, low rates, and therefore they do not happen. Mm-hmm. Some other, you make them very fast, and therefore you are very selective to that process. Is actually a very good helper, you know, for the fantasy of a chemist or a chemical engineering to, you know, make process work. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah, really good way of thinking of it as a facilitator of these chemical processes and makes things, like you say, almost as a, the fantasy to make these processes work even better uh, for chemists. Yeah. Well, I suppose then the, the obvious follow-up question uh, to that, Matteo, would be how, how can we use catalysts then? How can we use these within the production of alternative fuels? You've already mentioned actually we're using some already uh, in terms of fossil fuels. Presumably, there must be examples then as well of how we use these in alternative uh, fuel options. Yes, I mean, uh, the difference between uh, how we use catalysis today in energy and uh, how we need to use it nowadays uh, is uh, in the step. So let's say that uh, the current catalytic processes that you have, for example, in a refinery, act uh, on the refinement of the oil you know, to make it a good fuel. Here, actually, in the uh, towards the energy transition that we are facing, uh, we need actually to exploit the role of facilitator of the catalyst in terms of uh, target reactions in order to somehow introduce the photons in molecules, so in chemical bonds, and therefore produce, you know, alternative fuels. So, I would say that uh, in this respect, catalysis and catalysis engineering in particular will be crucial in developing uh, sustainable processes for the production of alternative fuels, especially for the integration with the renewable energy that comes, for example, from, uh, I don't know, wind, uh, solar, and whatever. For instance, the activation of uh, carbon dioxide, uh, which is uh, a very stable molecule, by using, for example, uh, renewable hydrogen uh, for the production of e-fuel is attracting nowadays a lot of interest from the catalysis scientific community. And catalysis also plays uh, a crucial role in the production uh, of renewable hydrogen, for example, in the so-called uh, uh, turquoise hydrogen. So you know that hydrogen has a different spectrum of uh, you know, colors. 
You have the, you know, the classical hydrogen, which is uh, the one that we produce from fossil fuels, is called the gray hydrogen. So where there is an emission of CO2 in order to, you know, make the process work in terms of uh, energy needed and also products that are forming the reaction. Then you have uh, the green hydrogen, which comes directly from the use of, uh, for example, electric energy in the water electrolysis, as I mentioned in one of the previous, uh, you know, answers. Then we have the blue hydrogen, which is a sort of gray hydrogen where you actually try to sequester the CO2. Turquoise hydrogen is, uh, you know, making hydrogen from uh, fossil fuels, methane, for example, but through catalytic pyrolysis. And in particular, I mean, this is actually part of my current research uh, uh, these days. Uh, you can also use this catalytic pyrolysis to produce hydrogen and produce uh, novel materials. And this results, uh, for example, in an additional accelerator of the, of the process because you're going to have a hydrogen production that you can use as an energy carrier. And then you could uh, displace materials that are very, very uh, CO2 emitting, for example, steel. So, I mean, I would say that chemistry in this regard can really, you know, give uh, a lot of routes that can be exploited. We are really in great, in great need of for the development of radically new electrochemical and thermochemical catalytic processes that must be energy efficient, selective, uh, and also composed by earth abundant and non-critical elements, which is a key point. And this will play a crucial role during the energy transition, considering also the scale of the energy you know, consumption. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you so much for the answer, Matteo. I have to confess, I'd never thought of hydrogen or never knew that hydrogen could be compared on a scale of colour from grey through to, to turquoise. But yeah, really, really interesting, particularly as you say, the sort of key role that catalysts could play, new forms of catalysts could play in making the process that much more sustainable and more efficient and less damaging, particularly in terms of CO2 emissions. But what are the biggest challenges then for their use? Is, is it something that's scalable that we can, we can apply to society's needs? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, the core scientific challenges that are associated with uh, these materials that are required lie in the end uh, in their molecular identity and the interfacial catalysis in general. So that means basically the interaction between the molecules uh, and the material itself, because this can affect on one side the so-called activation. So uh, in order to make it simple, the energy required to make it work and therefore the efficiency of the process somehow, also the stability during the operation. So we need, for example, to avoid the catalyst deactivation. So we, we need that the catalyst you know, is able to maintain his facilitator role, you know, without any deactivation in order to perform at best uh, in any operating condition that can be also very demanding in this field. Overall, I would say that uh, catalyst for the process that we are, you know, facing uh, exists. So we know we have, you know, candidate catalysts, but uh, most of them are limited by their poor efficiency low product selectivity or high cost rarity. So for example, you know, this is actually a very important problem when you go to, you know, at, at a real scale. So the rarity of the material uh, is, a, is, a, is a big problem. And uh, uh, 
Also, we need to make current sustainable processes uh, not too expensive in order to compete uh, with the you know, fossil-based ones that we are currently using today. So we need actually to make and to implement this in our economy. So additional technologies, technological challenges are also, I would say, associated with the scale-up and the integration of the sustainable process in the economy per se, given especially the enormous size of our energy needs and that we will need also in the future. Yeah. Wow. It's quite, it's a lot to consider when you think about it, even, and I imagine you might get these eureka moments every so often when you go, yes, great, this catalyst works brilliantly to improve this process, but this costs a lot of money and how much of this material can we get our hands on? And of course, as soon as you get onto economies of scale, and like you say, particularly when you've got to compete with a rather aggressive energy market at the moment as it is anyway, that's when it can get particularly, particularly difficult. Yeah, well, from a scientific point of view, we say that you, you can always learn. And then uh, even from, you, you don't need to be biased at the very beginning, something that you can say, okay, this is very rare. So, but you can actually learn from a scientific standpoint of view and then try to export this new knowledge and then to go to catalyst design or to discover, you know, different materials on the basis of that knowledge. I can see that, see that even if you find a particularly rare material that you say, is there a way to do synthetically or is there other options out there that have similar chemical properties, etc. And you're right, the only way to really progress then is to research more, to share this knowledge and to try and try and find good solutions. And it leads me to my penultimate question, eh, Matteo, and it's another particularly interesting one. And it was inspired by our discussion eh, when we went on a pre-brief where you showed me this fantastic picture from the Vanity Fair magazine of 1861, which was rather charming to look at, and it was Wales celebrating at a cocktail party because one of the headlines at the time, you know, this was just as oil was discovered as a as a new energy source, and Wales uh, were celebrating because suddenly they no longer needed to be hunted uh, to be the, the main source of oil at the time. And it's a reflection, of course, that, you know, when oil was first discovered, it was thought fantastic. This is a great solution to a problem, i.e. killing all the whales. So the question is, is there a best case event that we solve our current problem when we replace fossil fuels completely, we reduce CO2? Or is there a risk that actually we'll celebrate like these whales thinking that we've, we've solved this problem and then in 140 years time, people come back and say, ah, they shouldn't have celebrated a cocktail party so quickly. Are, are we maybe creating a future problem uh, by creating maybe more hydrogen or, or other byproducts in, in these other chemical processes? In general, there is a substantial difference between uh, the energy transition that we are facing today and the ones that we have uh, faced uh, in the past. Because in the past, uh, the transition uh, always occurred because a new and more efficient technology was implemented with a consequent effect uh, on cost uh, and lifestyle. So, for example, there was the new technology, the technology was appealing, the technology was implemented, and this resulted in a better, you know, life, in a better, you know, lower cost and so on and so forth. And this naturally has replaced the previous uh, form uh, of energy carriers. Today, it is different because... Uh, our starting point is the environmental problem that we need to face. So we need to find a noble solution to change our energy paradigm, which is uh, actually very efficient for our current economy. So this is hard to replace because in the transition also, we need also to govern the cost of the implementation and the impact on the life of people, which is, I would say, 
kind of a you know a big challenge beyond uh, beyond science for sure. There's actually a lot of different actors come into the game. I think that's a wonderful a wonderful comment, Matteo, and absolutely. The discovery of oil, in a sense, then drove its use. You know, when suddenly things became cheap and technologies then were possible and, and enabled almost by the use of oil and then suddenly having this very energy-dense, energy-rich uh, source just at our fingertips. And then we've become rather reliant. And indeed, you're right, the world of 1861 compared to today, if you think about the amount of electronic goods that we have, the amount of lighting, heating, uh, it's a it's a different ball game, And indeed... It's interesting to say the whales were just lucky in terms of the discovery coming in for them, but what we're looking at is a very specific problem, and indeed it requires a different way of thinking. But I suppose any which way, it's perhaps something for the chemists in 150 years' time to be worried about. And one final question, if I may, and this would be if our listeners were keen to find out a little bit more about what we've discussed, whether it's about alternative fuels or indeed the chemical processes behind energy, or the catalysts being explored, you know, to help make energy production more sustainable. Where could they go? What, what kind of resources are out there for them? For lay people, I would say uh, there are several good books. So personally, I've always found uh, very inspiring the books uh, of Leonardo Maugeri that I consider as one of our most uh, renowned energy experts and managers that we had. Uh, Another good book, for example, is uh, Energy for Sustainable World uh, from the Oil Age to a Sun-Powered Future by Armaroli and Balsani. I think it's a Wiley edition. There is also a, a very recent interesting book. Actually, I borrowed from him the concept of uh, exchange currency, which is CO2, can we turn lead uh, into gold? Uh, by Gianfranco, Gianfranco Pacchioni. I'm not sure actually whether there is only at the moment an Italian version at the moment. Might be that there is also an English version. But uh, I mean, if you have the chance, I would say this very, you know, nicely written and very inspiring, strongly suggested from my side. For an academic audience, uh, I guess that I would say that the best advice is to refer to radios and perspective articles that you find on different you know, reference journals uh, in, the, in the field of catalysis. And I would say that a good search in Scopus can bring a, a lot of material to, to your attention. It's just a matter to understand you know, good papers to you know, other papers. But you find a lot of very good reviews out in the literature. Superb. Thank you very much indeed. We'll, we'll pop uh, some of those resources, some of those books that you've suggested uh, onto our program notes. Matteo, and definitely we'll have a look to see if Gianfranco Pacioni's book is, is in English or not, because it does sound very good. It almost sounds like alchemy, you know, lead into gold. And maybe that also illustrates, you know, the, the size of the task that lies ahead for yourself and colleagues in trying to find good solutions to this problem in the world of chemistry. Brilliant. Then it brings us, I think, to the very end of our podcast, Matteo. And uh, all that's left to say is a massive thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights into what is a particularly complicated but very exciting area of research. And indeed, uh, for the further reading references where we can dig a little bit more uh, into chemistry and catalysts in the fight against climate change. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>